0: You're listening to the Own the Build podcast, where each week, Paul Hemming from Sealink interviews experts on how SME developers and contractors can transform their business through intelligent construction management.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode number 40 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. And Liam curls curly. How are you today, Liam? I'm great, Paul.
0: But I've got no nonsense chit chat for I'm ready that? to get straight into this.
1: You got absolutely nothing on me today.
0: I've got nothing on you no, no, not today. <laughs> not well,
1: tonight. I've got plenty. But uh,
0: well, no, I haven't got plenty. Actually, I've got nothing. There you go,
1: guys. <laughs> right, so we've we've got Liam quiet, which is a good thing. It's a very good thing. So we'll jump right in then today, Liam. So today our episode is titled Addressing the Skill Shortage and we are joined by Anjali Pindoria who is a QS, Quantity surveyor, I've got one of my own in at uh, AVI Contracts and a novice committee member with the CIOB and also a public speaker on topics around diversity and inclusion. That's a bit of a mouthful uh, but welcome to the show Anjali, how are you doing?
2: I'm good, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, really good today, thank you.
1: Good, good, good. Well, we're very pleased to have you on the show. And just to give everyone a little bit of context, give Liam a bit of context, me a bit of context, introduce yourself, uh, Angelina. tell us about your experience in the world that you are in.
2: So I'm a project surveyor at a carpentry and joinery subcontractor, um, which is a family business. Uh, We predominantly work on loads of commercial buildings that are derived from the main contractors that we've had supply chain partnerships with for over the last couple of years. Um, And so we can work on schools, hospitals, uh, leisure centres, and even hotels sometimes if we're quite lucky. Um, My journey into construction really started with my dad though. He was a carpenter training to become a director. And when we were younger, the only time that we would actually get spending time with him or to talk to him was if we joined him with his work. And he really hated takeoffs, but we didn't know what a takeoff was at that point. We just (laughs) thought it was coloring. And he had a whole load of highlighters. So it was like fun coloring for us. And he would say, I'm going to shout a door number everybody scramble and look for um, the door number and back then when we were tiny A1 drawings were like a wow thing you know you saw A4 paper in school but you never saw A1 and he would have them all out on the floor and he would scramble and shout a number and we would all like run to come and find it and so that's kind of my introduction into construction really and then as he started establishing the business he then got a laptop and from there, it was quite um, crazy because he would get site instructions and he needed help typing them up. But for us, it wasn't a site instruction. It was like, a oh, we're getting to use the laptop. So he would get us to do all his, you know, applications and stuff. And later did I know that that was going to be my job. So, yeah, pretty crazy. But that was my journey in.
1: Great journey. I have to say, your dad sounds like an absolute genius. <laughs> it sounds like he has... Is- so how can I get this done in any way possible? And he's got his kids on it and made a game out of it. it sounds, sounds very, very clever. Yeah, and, um, and there was
2: four of us, so got it done quicker. Uh, are, are,
1: are, are all four of you QSs or project managers? Are you all in the sector?
2: No. So top two went into more professional roles. And then myself and my younger brother came into construction and he's hands-on carpenter.
1: Oh, okay. Excellent. Excellent. So it's well and truly within the family. and that—that. That, so you got into construction primarily because of your dad, I'm guessing?
2: Yeah, primarily because of him. Yeah, definitely.
1: Amazing. Much like Liam in some ways, could I say that that's maybe less so, but there is some element of truth to that, is there? Well, I
0: did use the computer, but it was for Championship Manager.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, no, and I know.
0: I didn't do anything other than Championship Manager. I didn't do any takeoffs, so I'm afraid. But I don't think my dad did either. <laughs> so, <laughs>
1: probably not as professional as in uh, <laughs> So, the, um, the episode today, as I mentioned, is we're going to focus on the skill shortage. And one of the reasons why I wanted wanted to invite Anjali to the show was that she did a very interesting piece of research as part of her studies I wanted to explore with her. And I think that... Now it's quite an interesting time, isn't it, to be talking about the skills shortage when it seems to be that shortages of everything are the uh, topic of conversation across the country generally. And I did some reading on the skills shortages in construction in the run-up to this and it is at its highest level in 20 years. And we've got over 35,000 jobs on offer, which is a record high apparently for the sector. So clearly there is a bit of a problem and we need to address it in some ways, obviously, it's been talked about for some time anyway but I wanted to focus on communication with you today Anjali and talk about how we attract the next generation and that is kind of the topic of your research isn't it do you want to tell us a little bit more about that research?
2: Yeah so I sat down to think about what kind of issues there were in the industry that people weren't talking about and when I sat down to do my research, although the skill shortage is out there and there's so many statistics, I didn't feel as if anyone actually went out there to talk to the next generation and actually do some surveys on them. So instead of doing surveys on the industry, I went to a school, um, which was, you know, a state school out there, multicultural, to kind of figure out why people weren't coming into the industry and a lot of things started to stem so either their parents were carpenters or electricians so they were in the more vocational like roles and they weren't influencing them in because they thought you know we've got to an age now where we're retiring we're really tired our back's gonna go in you know we might have taken in so much asbestos they don't realize how much technology is changing construction and changing all the manual handling so you know, there was a lot of kids out there who just didn't even know the professional roles. You know, quantity surveying is probably one of the biggest job roles that we have in our sector. I'm and the best. To go in, <laughs> Well, we've got to be biased about that one. But the fact that kids didn't even know what a quantity surveyor was. I mean, you can go into a school and say, do you know what a doctor is? Do you know what an accountant is? And so the research was really to find out why they weren't coming in. I mean, I had one student say to me, it's for peasants. Why would I want to do it? And I just was like, what? Peasants? He goes, yeah, but Miss, obviously you're not one. but." And it was just like, really? Is that what you think? So that's when it hit home. Like People think that people going into construction are either poor or unpaid and things like that. And it's really not the case. So then it started to make me think, how do we flip the coin and show them what construction really is?
1: So what were the aside from the peasant's comment which is uh t- a tough one to stomach i think for probably many i mean people. yeah but fact number one i would say that's farming that's not construction <laughs> <laughs> but but so t- tell tell us who you spoke to in broader terms like in terms of how many people you spoke to and what were the key findings, and maybe we can talk around those
2: yeah, so I approached A level students because they were probably the most, you know, ones that were making those decisions to either go to university or come straight into work. And there was over a hundred and ten of them that I did the research on. The main kind of understanding and ground that I found was when I did my statistics, more than seventy five percent of those students actually felt that their image and who they were would actually hinder what kind of job role they were gonna get out there or the stereotypes out there were gonna stop them. So they felt that their exterior was going to determine what they could produce in the interior and what they could bring to the table. And that was actually really interesting because although we're trying to battle the stereotypes, a lot of these kids actually still feel that it's still out there in our world of construction. And until we kind of change that and have more role models come and speak out, then I don't think that's going to change. There was other statistics out there that only 10% of parents... So only 10% of all those kids that I did the survey on would actually fully support their kids into construction. And again, that, that was quite, you know, tough to take.
1: I have to say, and I'm not a good example of this because my family background has nothing to do with construction and I ended up in construction, but I do feel like a lot of the people I speak to who I know in construction got into it in some way in a similar way to how you got into it, Angelie. i.e. it was a family thing and therefore you were exposed to it, realised it wasn't the worst thing on the planet and therefore were more susceptible to fall into it but I can imagine that because I had no aspiration to join construction and I didn't know what a quantity surveyor was when I was at school nor did I particularly care to be honest with you so that resonates with how I I certainly felt at that time. Don't know what you think about that Liam.
0: Yeah I mean it's quite a big uh, topic to unpack to give a, 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 an opinion on. So just from my own perspective, yeah, I mean, my dad was a lead worker on the tools and to, you know, set up his own business. And I think then, you know, construction was something that you did with your hands. I didn't pursue construction because I think there was an element that if you if you were ambitious, you didn't do that if you were academic you didn't do that and i i, I was just the impression that i didn't i wasn't of the right skill set to go into construction because that meant building physically building and and if that and i'm from a working class background that is you know it's a wrong stereotype that was just, and i think it probably still is there
1: well is that is yeah. that is that effectively what you what you were talking and before about being people feeling boxed in, effectively, about certain roles. And is that exactly, the, cause it sounds like you were boxed in, Liam, in your thinking about it. Is that what resonated from your findings, Anjali?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of students felt that they had to fit into the status quo of what they looked like, um, you know, what they did. I mean, although I was in construction, the first three weeks of my university, I went and actually did accounting and finance because teachers in school were telling me, no, This is what you should do, mainly because I look like someone who should have gone into accounting and they forced me to do a UCAS application that I didn't want to do when I kept saying I want to go and do an apprenticeship in construction. But because teachers themselves didn't know what construction was, it was really hard to then advise students. And that's kind of what I got in the feedback still from the students now that they don't have the careers advisors and the teachers around them to support them and give them information to step outside of that so called status quo box that we all kind of feel boxed in that we should go into.
1: And so, what do you think can be done differently? What were what your recommendations at the end of this research?
2: So, my main recommendation was that we change something at legislation level. To kind of help with the curriculum in schools, but obviously that's something that is really big to stomach, and so to go and get that done in Parliament is very difficult. But at lower level, it was more have more outreach programs where companies go into schools to talk more, not necessarily just do it with one school, but you know have role models constantly going. I always say if we all, as construction, um, you know, workers, go back to our high school, for example then the amount of schools we'll be able to reach is more larger than going one person going around and trying to foot the whole of the UK in the year, as well as juggle a full-time job, right? So if you all went back and just went to your own school and spoke to them about what you do, obviously they're gonna see a role model because they can see someone that's grown up in the same area as them, but it's just that relatability. Um, so my biggest recommendation was, yeah, role models for sure.
1: Is that something that you're considering doing yourself? Is it something you are doing yourself? Are you going back to the school that you came from?
2: Yeah, so it was actually the same school that I did the research on. That was my high school. So the teachers then had an eye-opener because they weren't really keen on me going into construction. And A teacher that like actually pulled me aside and said, I think you're going to throw away a future that you have. And I was like, no, no. <laughs> really? And when I came back and explained my like journey so far and what I do, they were like, oh, okay. So... I think it's really good to constantly educate people, especially people who can see you from like the year sevens now that are in A-levels that saw me when I was there doing my A-levels. It's more that relatability, isn't it? That's key.
1: No, that, that makes total and utter sense. And we'll talk more about you and your career right after this break, Anjali.
0: Owner Build is brought to you from our sponsor, c software used by developers and main contractors to manage subcontract procurement in one place. Find subcontractors, automate tenders and contracts, control construction program, compare prices, and improve project profitability with c To find out more, head to c-link.com. Now back to the show.
1: So, Anjali, I recently saw and was impressed to see you spoke in public at the UK Construction Week. What did you talk about at UK Construction Week, which I sadly couldn't get to, even though it is in
2: Birmingham? Oh, that's a shame. But uh, next year, there's always next year. But um, so at UK Construction Week, I was invited down by Construction Helpline to discuss building bridges in diversity and inclusion. So I go around and I try to present on my 4 stage action plan for change that I think any individual in construction can do because I sometimes think that companies are implementing it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a company to implement it. There's something we can all do to kind of change that culture. Um, And I also think there's no hierarchy in change, especially this one. So that's what I was really presenting my 4 stage action plan for individuals to change
1: And can you tell us about what that four-stage action plan is?
2: Of course, yeah. So the first one was um, becoming a GoConstruct STEM Ambassadors um, role model. So STEM Ambassadors and GoConstruct have recently kind of combined to have one ambassador scheme. So you can go in and then Go and do those talks that i was talking about in schools and stuff so that was one of them the second one was supply chain engagement i mean i come from a subcontractor point of view and i just don't think there's any support for the supply chain We're a predominantly self-employed workforce. um, We don't really know where to change or bring in different people into the sector. So there needs to be a bit more support for SMEs, I think, on how to get apprentices, uh, apprentices, how to kind of tap into that market. And a lot of people don't know, but because we pay levies, um, especially to the CITB, there's a lot of grants that we can get back. So I think that education process just needs to happen. The third thing was, about reverse mentoring. So I'm a massive person on reverse mentoring on site. We have it in professional roles, but we're not doing it on site level. So for example, myself, I'll go on site and teach the four men on site who are slowly heading off into retirement about technology and showing them how to use the tablets and stuff. Also showing them how to use WhatsApp on their phones so they can start sending their wife selfies and things like that because they really appreciate <laughs> okay. that.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: And then in return, I want to learn about traditional construction that you don't get in a textbook anymore. There's so many heritage projects we work on these days and I can't find the answers anywhere. Google doesn't have them. So the only people that have them are the people that built them that many years ago. And they're still on our construction site. So I'm a big advocate on reverse mentoring to get that information out. So when that generation's kind of moved on, we as the next generation kind of coming in still have the skills because... I can kind of see that myself, especially. I don't have it to be at that same level of knowledge as you know those people out there. I've, and the fourth one was just be accepting of the change. But go on, you can go.
1: No, sorry, sorry to interrupt. You. I just wanted to kind of pull it back to reverse mentoring because although the clue is in the name, I've never actually heard it as a uh, as a phrase before. So, w- w- what exactly is reverse mentoring?
2: So reverse mentoring is where you kind of mentor somebody who's in a different position to you. Normally, you kind of mentor someone along the same lines as you. As, um, for example, if I'm a project surveyor, I would take on like a trainee surveyor. But reverse mentoring is when you do it to somebody who's completely different in a different role. So I, I believe reverse mentoring definitely on site is something that we should definitely think about, especially with the ages and things like that.
1: And so you've clearly had a positive experience with reverse mentoring. So you would mentor a trainee QS, but who did you reverse mentor? With? Who did you teach how to send WhatsApp <laughs> selfies to?
2: So we we have a lot of uh, guys who've worked for our company for many years, and they're the ones that you'd hear the guys like saying, "Oh, only they can do that one job," or "You'll have to send him because he's the only one who's got the skill set." So it's actually. Just just one of the carpenters on site, really. And he just got a good good hand, as they say in the trade, isn't it? He's got a good hand. So.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Okay, And then so so your item number four, which I rudely interrupted on. what, what, What was that? Remind me.
2: Oh, no, I squished it in. It's fine. It was just um, be accepting of the change. So there's different people that need to start coming into the sector in order for us to meet this skills crisis that we have, especially because we're diversifying in roles, um, you know, with sustainability technology becoming quite prominent in our industry. So it was more just be accepting of different people. Because I find that, especially with construction, how it was, because there wasn't many women or multicultural people out on site because people haven't worked with those types of people before they're really struggling to understand how do i now start working with them so intrigue can sometimes come out as insulting but it's just the way we phrase questions and you know ask things i think
1: how How did you feel like it was received was it received well
2: uh at uk construction you mean right yeah yeah, we were on a stage where people were just walking by, so I was hopefully captivating the audience, so yeah.
1: <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's great, and uh, I have to say it's one of the main reasons, one of the initial reasons why I was, I was drawn to have a conversation with you is, is that you seem so, so passionate about these things, and you, and you stand out from the crowd in speaking about it as well. It's, it's, it's great to see so much passion on such an important topic.
2: Oh, thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and as well as talking about outwardly communicating as as a sector, I wanted to talk to you about how we or main contractors or property developers can actually better communicate with joinery contractors. So an example of this would be we were having an interesting conversation probably 10 episodes or so ago now, Liam and I, with, on the topic of communication. We were talking about what it means. And obviously, communication has so many different Strands to it, but an example being that a really good way to communicate on site is when a new contractor arrives on site, giving them the marked up drawings, to tell it preparing a clean area for them, etc., etc., and that then resulting in a better site. Generally, as a joinery contractor, tapping into your expertise of what is a site that you don't want to be on and what is a site that you do want to be on, how do we as a sector better prepare? projects and sites and communicate with joinery contractors
2: so i firstly think from the offset pre-con meetings are really fundamental in the sense of like you're saying have those scopes marked up have a clear um, csa of what's included what's not included and then everything's more you know clear-cut as to what's included what's not so we prefer having marked up drawings of areas for example skirting and doors you can have hundreds of doors on a job but some could be external internal so having everything marked up skirtings etc there's no then quibbles over measures in terms of site productivity after i have seen best practice when sites have weekly meetings that include all the contractors so as a carpentry business we're one of those that rely on dry liners to have the project ahead of us ready then we wait for the painters to have everything painted before we can go and do that final fix of ironmongery and the last bits of touching up so for us we're heavily reliant on the trade before us to then affect our program. So when communication is key is advance notice of delays, not just letting us know on the week that we're meant to be turning up, things like that. I've seen it best when the team will sit around with all the site foremans, for example, and actually discuss works ahead. So marking up two weeks ahead of work. That helps with deliveries, especially now a lot of sites are just-in-time deliveries, things like that there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes than just bringing your tools to site and starting on Monday, you know, so. Yeah.
1: And and what what one thing do you think we could learn from one of your recent projects where things went very well?
2: So when things go well, it's more having the technology in place sometimes like excel documents uh i love a good excel and it's just small things like it's just small things like using conditional formatting to just see you know visually okay are we on target are we not with any delays and stuff like that having a clear-cut program that's looked at weekly i think matrixes for markups it's all things like that that then help the trade before you and after you especially um and that's when it's worked well when it's not worked well is when there's too many cooks in the kitchen. And I think, especially right now, with a lot of contractors not having many projects, we see a lot of jobs having surplus, maybe site managers on there, just to come and help out a little. Yeah, so we've seen it quite a bit, actually. So a lot of jobs that aren't necessarily ready, you'd have maybe some like other site managers and foremans kind of come over just to help out. But because they don't know the background of the job, you're then having to explain everything again. And it's that whole communication, isn't it, of if somebody's starting the job, it's, it's best that person finishes the job or that handover process to the next person needs to be clear and concise And so, again, that's another really good thing that I see sometimes, meeting minutes. I know everybody hates writing meeting minutes, but it's a godsend when you need to dig it out and say, well, no, it was discussed X, Y, and Z, you know?
1: Mm. Yeah, you're you're sounding very much like a QS there, Angie. I've got a lot of time time for that. But uh, going back to what you've just said about it being a little slower than usual, is that a feeling that you have? Because anecdotally... Still hearing from a lots of contractors that it's manic, that it's crazy. Have you? Are you saying that you've seen a bit of a shift, really, in the last few weeks and months?
2: I think it's more job dependent. So because we're subcontractors, we could be blessed with maybe 10 to 15 jobs at a go and we're running that simultaneously. If out of that, five projects are delayed, we then have to look for work to fill that. So it's easy for a main contractor because theirs is project by project. They're still, you know, able to shift their staff. But for us, it's more, okay. where do we fill that scope? Then if those five projects then get taken to next year, it's do we have too many next year too? So right now, for example, I'm talking about how we are as a company. It's more not there's necessarily a slowdown in the industry, but it's a slowdown where we're working, where it could be designs um, or just general delays because of other trades in front of us on site that was stopping us.
1: Got you. Okay. And um, one thing that I know people listening will be thinking is that you work a lot with timber, obviously, with what you're doing, and the timber pricing right now for the raw material pricing is theoretically uh, absolutely mental, isn't it? It's gone, I think, 2, 3x in the last... Yeah. months. How is is that affecting what you guys do?
2: It's affected us quite a bit because obviously with tendering new jobs, it's very difficult to predict. Is the market going to get worse? Is it going to be better? Especially live jobs that we're on right now, keeping up with variations, it's having to stay on top of what month was this ordered? So there's a lot more time that's having to go into it, a lot more um, analysis being done by the contractors, especially but it's stabilizing slowly because every month we get kind of an update from our timber merchants and we're quite blessed with good timber merchants that they send us like a nice little summary so we're not having to read pages and pages. So things are going to start steadying slowly, but it's one of those things, isn't it? Once the price goes up, it's highly likely it's going to come back down in any rush, especially if people are prof- like getting profits out of it. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I saw, I saw that the the price of... Uh, the lumber futures had gone up from 450 I think to 1500 in the space of 12 months but it has come back down so I was expecting to see it level out and become better what advice do you have for somebody who is procuring a project now in regards to timber because you would be almost thinking I should get this price locked in if I was the buyer I know it's different for you on the other side as the subcontractor but if I was the buyer I'd almost be thinking Maybe I need to lock in this price now because where's the price gonna be in two, three months' time? How what how how do you see it?
2: I think with anything in construction, um, it's a risk, isn't it? It's like steel. It's like, how how do they operate? There's always that factor of risk that you just need to take upon. With any job we do, especially, for example, jobs we be procured before a recession, we then took it in a recession. It was, and then when you're tendering in a recession, you have to tender low. So I think there's always peaks and troughs in construction, especially as a subcontractor, is how you then manage your buying. How are you managing your waste on site? So for example, good things that we're doing is, when we're buying things like MDF and stuff, we might be using a rip of eighteen of eight hundred. Sorry, on a window board, can the rest be kept aside to then be used as a boxing or any miscellaneous items? So you're not then overspending. So it's been good in terms of sustainability because people are being able to rethink about what they're using. But when you're procuring right now, I guess it's very difficult. You just have to take a factor of risk. I think, but that's construction, isn't it?
1: It definitely is. You're right. But when so when you're submitting a tender, as Joinery, carpentry contractor, are you qualifying that the price is subject to fluctuation because of current market or are you still accepting lump sum prices? Are you still saying this is our lump sum price?
2: So, the way we kind of tend it is it will turn lump sum just before we win the project and that is when we'll take a judgment um, and we'll have to speak directly with the suppliers to see if they can hold their prices. If they're able to hold their prices, then we'll definitely lock in our prices. If they then cannot hold that, then we find it difficult to then hold it because you don't know where the market's going to go. So it has to be project by project, I reckon.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I guess you have to, as the buyer, the earlier that you get an indication as to where your forecast spend is going to be, the better. But it does make sense from a subcontracting perspective where you're coming from to give yourself that wiggle room because obviously prices, are particularly now, are moving at such a electric rate, aren't they? It's crazy.
2: Yeah, definitely. Mm
1: as the buyer as well
0: you can't you can't expect a subcontractor to be holding prices on raw materials you've got to you've got to you've got to do your own risk management
1: and uh, absolutely I completely agree with that but I I think some people do expect, I'm, I'm a subbie by background, so I'm, in fact, all three of us are, to be fair, aren't we? So um, I think we know how it feels when you're at that end of the food chain and you do feel like people do want to push the risk down. But if you're doing your analysis early, if you get starting to get the prices back, that's the best thing you can do. But yeah, I totally agree, Liam. You can't expect the subbie to swallow it, can you? Well, no, and if, you,
0: if that's how you think you're going to run your business, you're going to have huge problems you're putting pressure on your supply chain on what is usually a small business it's just a poor way to manage uh, your procurement isn't it The buyer should be doing risk management on these materials
1: yeah no I, def- I definitely agree and I have to say guys it's Remarkable actually that we, I, I thought you had been so intriguing and interesting, Angelie, that we hadn't even managed to get a word out of Liam until late on there. But he came, he's, he's come out, he's come out of the blocks late on. No, thank, thank you so much for coming on the show, um, Angelie. It's a pleasure that you to have, to have had you on. We'll be putting your details and Abby Contracts uh, details in the description of the podcast. And thank you so much for, for joining us, Angelie. We love having you here.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Anjali. Good to see you. Excellent. Thanks, Anjali. So, everyone, we will speak to you next week. Anjali, see you later. Liam, see you next week, mate. See you next week.
2: Bye.
1: Cheers, guys. Thanks.